It's September 3rd, 2020. This is Rock. of detention, intimidation, and coercion. An Iranian-Canadian tech world star finds himself in the middle of an international news story after being arrested by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard. Behdad Esfahbud is a former Google and Facebook employee who's never been much of an activist, but that changed after a distressing series of events on a trip to Iran this year. He's now back in the West, and he joins us with his story. Plus, comedy in the Iranian diaspora has largely been a male domain, Max, Omid, and others, but Melissa Shoshaw, he is a comedian out to change that, and she's here too. Plus, the Rook Roundtable reconvenes on the Letters of the Week. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Hey, welcome to episode number 41 of Rook. Hope you're staying safe and sane, savoring the final days of summer, if you are in the Northern Hemisphere. Omidvar hastam ke garm bashin, shayajun. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, thank you. So <laughs> some of my best work. Uh, I hope everybody's staying warm, uh, which doesn't make a lot of sense if you are in the Northern Hemisphere. But anyway, there's people listening in Australia. We've now, we know that, by the way. We've seen the yes, analytics. we've seen some letters come from And we've seen some letters mm-hmm. from Australia. Iranian-American comedian Melissa Shoshahi will join us from the West Coast in about an hour from now. She's done something she calls the Travel Ban Comedy Show amongst her gigs in the last couple of years. She's coming up. Also, I am very interested to speak with Behdad Esfahbud, our feature interview today. He has quite a story to tell. We'll reach him in a few moments, as you can hear. Uh, Sort of the full Thursday Rook on Air gang is here. The fabulous Keon. Hello. Hi, Gian. Hello, Keon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else to say. <laughs> That's You've done great. Good work. You keep it short today. Uh, Captain Reza. Hello, sir. Hello, sir. You were wearing a, a hoodie earlier. You've yeah. now taken off the hood. Yeah. You've become more accessible. I, yes, I have. Yes. yes I Less have indeed. intimidating. That's correct. And uh, Groovy Shia. Hello. Hello, Gian. And uh, we have a Rook Roundtable today, and I want to introduce our very special guest sitting around the table right now as well. Uh, We'll hear more from him later, but right now, Ali Reza Tahiri, he is an Iranian-Canadian author, psychoanalyst, psychotherapist, and a Cambridge grad. Hello, Ali Reza. Hello, Xian. That's uh, always going to be impressive to the Persians, throwing the the Cambridge. Yes, the name brands. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We yeah. like the name brands. We like the Gucci, Gucci bag and the Cambridge grad. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank I you for think having me. You have the distinction of being someone like me and Keon, who has um, a great connection, affinity, and um, uh, uh, cultural DNA of being Iranian, but you actually never lived in Iran, is that I, correct? I never did, no. no. I Born in France? 
I was born in France, uh, and we moved here to Toronto when I was eight years old. So um, I think, you know, maybe as an infant, we spent a month or two in Tehran, uh, something like that. But you think? Uh, you don't know the story? I, uh, you know... It's, it's I, hazy? It's, you don't, it's pretty <laughs> hazy. I think right. I was six months old. Okay. We might have spent there. And then maybe... You're told that you spent yeah, some time Yeah, these there. are all right. things I was told. I do know we did go there when I was four. But again, three weeks maybe. Right. So, so you I visited. Have, you yeah, visited. Pre-Angalab. Yeah. Uh, when I was four, that was just around the Angalab. Oh. So we're talking, you know, in the last days. Honey, of, let's take a trip to Iran. There's yeah, a there's the a revolution re- <laughs> is afoot. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, uh, and yeah. and then you you spent time in Canada and then Cambridge. So you were in the in yeah. England for a while. That's right. Yeah. So I'm just mentioning Cambridge as many times yeah, as I can yeah, for your course. sake. Uh, yeah, of course, yeah, and, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I know you're an esteemed uh, psychotherapist and, you, and you're also an author. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you oh, for thank doing you. this. It's we'll a pleasure get, to be here. get to you as part of our roundtable today. Uh, I wanted to mention, Keon, did you notice anything when you walked into the Rook Studios, uh, sort of the office part today? Some redecorating, I noticed. No, who's, no, no, that part out there. Oh, out there? Oh, the painting. Yes. A couple it, of pieces of art beautiful. by Ebrine, Ebrine right? Bagheri, yeah, our guest from uh, episode number 25. Yeah, I know I you know the episodes by numbers. Of course I do, naturally. <laughs> yes. I dream uh, about them. Ebrine, who is such a an interesting artist and such a, I mean, we love what he does. Um, he does these kind of self-portraits that mix genres and genders and, and identity. And so one of the pieces out there is um, a boy which has looks kind of mm-hmm. like Ebrin with a, a dog who looks like my dog Ugi, yeah, which I think say. is why Ebrin, you know, it's a sentimental kind of French bulldog looking. But the other one, it's this captivating painting with uh, that he says is inspired by his two loves, which are Judy Garland and Betty Davis mixed with Ebrin. Um, so thank you to Ebrine for we've got some amazing if anybody else wants to give us art by the way we'll, 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 we'll it showcase in. it and talk about it if there's any other uh, world renowned artists that, that want to but uh, thank you Ebrine thank you uh, and thank you to Captain Reza for all your hard work in putting up those paintings my pleasure you complained about it all week and <laughs> thank you for putting them up finally uh, we are uh, continuing to get letters and comments from our Pahlavi Dynasty series. That this is, uh, I guess, a couple of weeks ago now. Our, our episodes on commemorating, uh, reflecting back on the, on the 40th anniversary of the death of the Shah of Iran, and different perspectives on how the narrative around the Pahlavi Dynasty it may be changing. Uh, Dr. Abbas Milani, Andrew Scott Cooper, Mohammed Amini all joined us. Uh, we, we're getting. A lot of comments about that still. And Homer Sashar, who was our guest uh, this past Monday, the legendary Iranian-American uh, journalist, uh, we're getting a bunch of comments about her as well. So I guess we'll deal with all of that at Letters of the Week, yes, right? Yes, we will. Okay. So Rook Roundtable coming up, Melissa Shoshahi coming up, Letters of the Week coming up. But let's get to our featured guest right now. On January 7th of this year, Behdad Esfahbod, an Iranian-Canadian software engineer working in the U.S. at Facebook, formerly at Google, a superstar among technology students in Iran, traveled to Tehran for a two-week vacation to visit his family there. The night he arrived in Iran coincided with the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or IRGC's, attack on U.S. military bases in Iraq as a retaliation, if you remember, for the death of General Qasem. Soleimani. 
The next day, on January 8th, the Ukraine Flight 752 was shot down, killing all 176 civilian passengers and crew. And against that backdrop, Behdad reunited with his family in Tehran. A few weeks later, Behdad departed Iran under what he now describes as a coerced deal to act as an informant for the IRGC, the powerful and deadly arm of Iran's military. In the intervening time, Behdad Esfahbud had been the subject of a distressing set of events. The 38-year-old engineer was arrested by IRGC agents on the streets of Tehran, held in solitary confinement for seven days, and psychologically tortured into promising to cooperate, which he says he never did. Since returning to the West, he struggled as his mental health, his marriage, and his career have fallen apart. He said he has considered suicide. And the story is not over. More recently, on June 14th, the IRGC contacted Behdad on Instagram, WhatsApp, Telegram, and Signal. He did not respond. In the last couple of weeks, Behdad has decided to speak out about his experience in Iran and has been the subject of news stories around the world. And right now, Behdad Esfahbud joins me from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Hello, sir. Hi, Gian. How are you doing today? I'm okay. Thank you for doing this, Beth Dodd. And, um, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm very sorry for all you've been through this year. How are you doing right at this moment in Edmonton? I'm uh, doing much better than I've been for the past six, seven months, and that's what gave me the strength to make this public now. Why are you Why are you in Edmonton? Um, because my sister and mother and sister's family uh, moved here from Saskatchewan and after six months of being alone and isolated and quarantined in Seattle, I decided that I want to move back and live with family. Better, what has it been like the last couple of weeks to be at the center of international media, to be on the front page of the New York Times? Um. The, the international reception has been amazing. I've only been getting support. It's the Iranian side that is more wicked. <laughs> I got on, I got active on the Persian Twitter and then quickly had to fend off the IRGC's puppets attacking me and trying to uh, call my story suspicious. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there is all the monarchists, and not all of them, some of the monarchists and some of the people who oppose the Islamic regime, who also brand me as an insider because, I don't know, made up reasons. So I've been, <laughs> I have to prove myself again to a wide range of yeah. Iranian opinion. Not that I have to, but like the, everybody, the, the default there seems to be that a lot of people question my story. Let, let me let let's let's get to that eventually. I, I let, let me just start off by saying, first of all, I mean, you are a, you're an engineer. You haven't been unknown, as I said. You're a superstar in tech, but you, I'm guessing, have never been at the epicenter of this level of attention. Uh, what what is that like in general for you? Um, <laughs> it. It goes both ways. Just just before making my story public, I was dealing. I was fighting another fight, which was a professional fight against Microsoft and Adobe. And then when I 
revealed my my detention story it at the same time it gave me more credibility against all more like for all my files or but at the same time some people started to sympathize with me and associate all my fights with my mental state and in a way dismissing it unintentionally so i'm not sure yeah. <laughs> if it helps my other causes or not listen i, I want to get into the uh, acutely distressing ordeal you've been through in, in recent months and, and the fact that you've gone public and the fact as you say that some folks are even questioning some of your story but if you don't mind, let, let's get some context for who you are. That's This is a long-form show. You are called a superstar in tech circles, especially for young tech engineers in Iran. You were born in 1982 in northern Iran. And, and if I have the story right, by nine years old, you were already at the helm of your father's IBM. Tell, tell me how you gravitated towards computers and new technology, even as a kid. Sure. Uh, my father was a printer. He had a print shop in Saudi. His father was a printer and my uncle was a printer. So they grew up in a print shop and my brother and I also grew up in a print shop. And then my mother and uh, aunt were calligraphers. So we grew up in a house that typesetting and typography and letter forms were common. So when I was nine, my father bought the IBM PC for for typesetting purposes. And then my brother and I, we just self-taught ourselves programming on it. It started with basic, QBasic. Later on in middle school, we learned Pascal. And then in high school, uh, we got into computer programming competitions. When I went on to win a gold and a silver medal internationally, and then, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was going to say, yeah, you were, you were studying for the International Olympiad in informatics, which you did pretty well. And then you end up going to Sharif University, which, as Iranians in the diaspora will know, is sort of the top school when it comes to these kinds of things. And, and you get involved in the development of fonts and particularly the pursuit, if I understand it, of making Persian readable and usable on the Internet. Why was working on a Persian text so important to you? Again, in the same backdrop of typesetting and typography, by the time I got to high school, as part of uh, the, the competition Olympiad I was studying, I met a friend of mine, I met someone who had done the same competition before. He was a teacher for us and became a mentor and friend, and he was working on Persian typesetting using a computer system called Tech which is very commonly used in scientific circles. So I got involved in that. And so we could typeset Persian texts and books uh, using that. But when the internet was just booming and reaching to Iran, it wasn't possible in a, uh, in a way, and it was problematic to use Persian on the internet. And I was working in a center in the university called the Computing Center. The Computing Center had the responsibility of providing internet to the rest of the university. And one of the projects there was to make Persian work on the internet. And typesetting and letter forms were so personal to me. And it just made sense for me to work on that. I mean, as the story goes, by the early 2000s, you're involved in creating 
two national standards in Iran for text. Then right. in 2003, you moved to Canada. I'm curious, since you were achieving such success in Iran, and I imagine materially so too, why did you want to move to the West? So uh, I started my undergrad in 2000, and incidentally, September 2000 was also when I got my first paycheck. And I finished my bachelor's at Sharif University while also working in three years, which is not common. And uh, I did have offers to stay around and work on the same thing, but somehow everybody who did these Olympiad competitions would go to, uh, to grad school in the West, and I felt like I have to do that. It's mm. not something that I thought about much. So you end up coming west, you do the grad school, you end up working at Google. I'm sort of speeding through the story here, but yeah. the Google part is significant because I, I can only imagine that's like working, you know, that's the mecca of technology. What was it like for an Iranian kid to have come to the west and to be headhunted by Google? Uh, okay, so let me, let me uh, shine some light on this. Uh, Google is one of the best companies in tech to work for, but it also has like, 30, 50,000 engineers. So I keep telling my, uh, like whoever asks me, especially <laughs> in Iraq, you don't have to have a gold medal internationally to get hired by Google. That's not the way it works. It's There are two, three percent of engineers that Google are Iranian at least. Uh, that's, that's in the hundreds already. So, uh, it's not like it's it's not uncommon at all like uh, pretty much anyone from sharif university who studies in the west can get into google if they're really determined to and not only sharif we have a lot of iranians from other universities we have people who haven't finished their undergrad who are in google it's just about how determined you are to study the core of computer science and prepare for the interviews. You did call it your dream job. It was a dream job for nine years. It was a dream job for me on a different level in that I managed to, I managed my career to have full flexibility and control of what I work on, which is not common, which is not what everyone else gets to do. So that's the part that made it a dream job for me. You know, before this latest ordeal, and uh, which um, is the subject of the Google results that'll come up if one puts your name in now to <laughs> into into the, the online forums or, or platforms, you were known. You were perhaps best known for something called variable fonts. Um, can you describe very mm. briefly to a non-tech audience what what the significance of variable variable fonts are? Interesting that you get into that. Um, so I'm mostly, I'm best known for a library that I wrote called Half Buzz, uh, which is used to show text, to render, to display text in every language on billions of devices, like any Android, Chrome, Firefox, even the latest Adobe apps. So I'm known for Half Buzz. That's an implementation of uh, fonts. Like when you have a font, the, the device uses the font to show you display text. There's a piece of software involved to do that. I work on that software. And variable fonts is this thing that in five years ago, 
uh, I started working on and then it became a collaboration with Microsoft and Adobe and Apple and became a new industry standard. Basically think of it this way. Previously fonts had you had you could you you could change the size of fonts. You could use any size you want, but other than that you had the regular and the bold and maybe an a black weight, maybe a light. Right. So you had a few distinct weights and widths. What we did in variable font, we just made it possible to to adjust the slider and get any weight you want or any width you want. So we just made the the design space of fonts being a lot more expressive. So that was just an evolution of the font format. <laughs> right. You make it sound so simple. You literally affected the way we all write to each other. But but I but uh, but yeah. But your modesty is noted on that. Um, well, uh, someone has to do it. Someone. That's right. That's you right. Use on computer, somebody wrote that software. Of course. I just happened yes. to work on the displays of things. So 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 then last year, in February of 2019, you leave mm-hmm. Google. You leave this dream job, as you say, for the last uh, for nine years mm-hmm. to work at Facebook. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I have no reason to believe in all that I've read about you in, in recently that you had any uh, negative experience in Facebook for that first year. I'm assuming you were making a lot of money. Things were going well, yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. So so why did you – so you're a guy who's doing well working at Facebook. You've got this pedigree. You've got this career. You're making a lot of money. Well, tell me about choosing to visit Iran in January of this year. Well, I don't see how those things are incompatible. <laughs> They're not. I've been visiting Iran since 2015. I've been back uh, almost 10 times. And I would go there to see family, to see the streets of Iran, to visit friends that I made over the years, and to talk to my friends and advise them and mentor them and consult for their startups and just uh, contribute back what I learned in the West in my 20 years in the mecca of tech basically and uh, take some of that learning back to Iran and, and just offer it to anyone who wants to listen right that that, that was actually ex- exactly my point in other words it was a benign visit to to iran to visit family and uh, as you've been doing for the last decade last couple of decades yes uh yeah i i stopped going back between 2009 and 2015 after the green movement but then i resumed going back so, so Betha, just, just, I mean, again, you c- couldn't have necessarily predicted what was going to happen, but you visited, uh, this is the period just after Soleimani had been killed and the day right. before Flight 752 was shot down. There was increased saber rattling between the U.S. and Iran in these days. Did you have any trepidation at all about this trip? My partner did express extra concern after the, the shooting, the killing of Soleimani, and... Uh, I I still so this is how I calculate. Obviously, going back to Iran, and I know the Iran uh, regime enough to know that I'm every time I go, I'm risking some trouble. And my mental model was that if they stop me and and question me, I just have to explain and show and prove that I don't do anything of the of interest to them, and then they will let me go. So that much, uh, the part I got wrong was that they, there's no limit to what they try to do. So the miscalculation was the part that, the part at the end that they 
forced me to spy for them. So, so, so that's where I let, let, let's take it step by step. So you're in Tehran, you're visiting. What happens on Wednesday, January the 15th at 11 a.m.? So you've been in yeah. Iran now for a, a week or two, a couple of weeks. Tell us what happened. So for the most part, I, I stepped back a couple of days, a few days uh, to make it more clear. So I was in the north of Iran. Uh, there was a memorial service for my grandfather who had passed away. And then I posted a couple of pictures on Instagram and tagged them uh, in Iran. And then the IRGC intelligence service has been monitoring my social media. And they try to uh, find me. So they wait at my sister's residence in Iran for me to go home to, to abduct me on the street. I happened to stay at friends for a couple of nights. So I made the mistake of making a phone call using the regular send phone call instead of any of the apps and they were listening into. And I set up a time and place to meet my father the next day and they showed up there and after I was done talking to my father, I walked out of that cafe and I was walking to catch a car to go to my friend's startup and meet with others there when uh, someone called me from behind by a part of my last name that I never used. And I automatically turned and there were these four plainclothes people. Uh, from the looks, I knew it's trouble. As you know, those are the... Uh, IRGC type or the Basiji type and then they approach me and tell me they have a warrant to arrest me and they show me this piece of paper it has the judiciary mark on it and it has the IRGC intelligence uh, as the plaintiff or whoever got the warrant. Sorry, when you were saying they'd been um, following you on Instagram and arranging to, to come and get you, mm -hmm. uh, you didn't know this. You're, t you're saying this in retrospect, no, right? No. Yeah, so this is a yeah. complete surprise to you when these guys uh, follow yeah. you and, and, and say we're going to arrest you. Yeah. Okay. It was a surprise. It was, yeah, to, to approach me like that on the street was a complete surprise. In 2015, when I went back after nine, six, seven years, six years, I did receive a call from the intelligence, the government's intelligence ministry. And I met with them in a public restaurant and they asked if their tech guys can contact me later. And I said no, and they respected that. They never tried to contact me again. So I had an experience with the regular government intelligence ministry that wasn't unpleasant, in a, that wasn't coercive at all. Okay. But for four people to fetch me on the street, that I didn't expect, no. So what happens when they fetch you? So when I saw the IRGC name on there, I knew, uh, like, I... I thought I might not see the West again because that has happened to people. <laughs> and then I look at the allegation, it's the usual that they associate with the dual citizens and whoever they want to just detain. It was activity against the security of the Islamic regime and working with enemy groups and a couple more. 
so on the one hand i know i'm in big trouble on the other hand i don't have any options i can't run away or i can't refuse to go with them so i start getting in the car then i get out of the car ask to see that paper again and while doing that i turn off my cell phone anyway they show me that paper again tell me to get in the car and inform me that we're going to my sister's residence for them to collect the rest of my belongings my laptop my passports my uh, every document that they can they want to search through so uh, we get in the car and there's two agents on my side and two in the front and one of these agents is really rude and aggressive uh, so that one the rabbit one he demands to have my phone i give him the phone he turns it on and demands that i enter the pin code to boot the device and i hesitate a bit and enter a wrong one like pretending that i don't remember and then he just gets aggressive and uh, i think about it more i know if i don't give them access there will be physical torture that's unquestionable so i i log into my phone and they quickly start looking through to see yeah who i've been talking to or if i have been contacting anyone if the first question they asked was who do you work for or who do you work with mm. i said i don't really work with any groups that you care about and you've never been uh detained before in this way in, in iran right i mean no, this, so so i can only imagine i mean if, speaking for myself but i can only imagine you're terrified at this point right you're sitting in this car you you don't well yeah you, you don't know what's going to happen well, the, what I'm thinking more is I'm remembering my partner's concerns about me going there. I'm like, I fucked up. I shouldn't have come. Hmm. <laughs> so, but at the same time, because I have no options, I'm staying calm and uh, just trying to think clear. And that went on for the whole next week when I was in their detention. I wasn't distressed much i was trying to think clear and figure out the best way to act and uh, to get out and to to find this uh, trying to optimize the outcome and you're you're not particularly political right i mean but you had I'm been not political at all you're not political at all you you have been <laughs> outspoken during the green movement protests in tw 2009 well, was that relevant to the islamic regime authorities for some reason in iran so, uh, first, I don't call myself an activist or anything up until a week ago. Like, uh, whatever I did during the Green Movement or after, I just see that as what any concerned citizen should be doing, sure. basically just voicing my opinion. So, after the Green Movement, I did more of that. Like, in 2015, I supported the nuclear deal. I was arranging a gathering in Copenhagen, <laughs> out of all places, in support of the nuclear deal with Iran. In 2017, when the Muslim ban was instated by Trump, I was 
uh, opposing that and protesting. I went to, I was going to the San Francisco airport to protest every day for a week. And then, uh, so uh, when Bernie Sanders was a candidate, I was uh, campaigning for him. So I've been doing that all as a citizen. I wasn't uh, associated with any groups. I always had a full-time job in tech. So that's the background gotcha. that I had. Got it. Now, was my 2009 activities relevant to my arrest? It was relevant, but it wasn't the reason. The reason for my arrest was that I was friends with activists, Iranian activists, who work on internet freedom. And the IRGC unit that detained me, they are tasked with bringing down Iranian activists who work on internet freedom. It's my understanding that after last November, so last November they were, there was uprisings in Iran, as happens every 10 years. If you look back, the last time was 2009, the last time, the time before that was 99. Every 10 years is just a generational thing, right? Sure. Yeah. So there is uprising this time to avoid uh, another green movement, the government just shuts down the internet completely yes, for yes. a whole week. Blocked it out for years. It's yes. my understanding that after that blackout, they increased their efforts to to shut down or to fight against the Iranian activists who work on net freedom. And that's how I became a suspect. Right. Or person of There's even been talk that they want to close down all social media platforms, right? Yeah, that, so, yeah. that's right now happening. Yeah. 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 So, so how did you find out that this is why they have detained you, or is this just something that you've deduced now in retrospect? Well, the, yeah, it was in retrospect. I mean, it became very clear during the questioning and interrogations that lasted for like five, six days. That was what they were questioning about. All the groups that are um, close to because of my friendship with people in those groups. So to recap, at Green Movement time, I was in Toronto. I was protesting online and also in the streets of Toronto. So I became friends with tens of people, like-minded people, both online and in Toronto. Yeah. And when I went back to my tech job and forgot about the Green Movement a year later, some of these friends became full-time activists and they started their own non-governmental organizations gotcha. to to work towards the goal of civil liberties or internet freedom uh, in Iran. And I maintained my friendship with these people and it's those connections that uh, made me a potential, a person of interest to the IRGC. So Beta, they, they put you in solitary confinement for a few days, yes? Right, right. Were you tortured somehow? Uh, not physically, yes, uh, psychologically. How were you tortured psychologically? Can you talk about it? Well, sure, yeah. For the most part, I was not holding back information that uh, would make them suspicious of whether I'm, you know, cooperating or not. But a couple of times, they brought in a different interrogator to talk to me in a very different tone. And then my head captor told me 
that's the other side of the coin, uh, suggesting that if I don't speak out voluntarily, if I try to withhold answers, they will treat me very differently. And one of those interrogators, uh, the threatened, basically threatened killing me and my family, what he said, and remember, this is less than a week after the IRGC admitted that they shut down the Ukrainian airliner. Right. Uh, and they called it human error. So this interrogator told me at the end, before leaving, he said, remember, like you have a brother in the U.S., uh, you are here, you have family here. Remember the airliner? Remember human error? Uh, he said, think about it, human error, suggesting that I can be killed or my family can be killed and associated reason as human error. So uh, right. that was the intimidation. So they they end up suggesting that you cut a deal with them. What was the deal and, and, and what were the terms? Right. So this is, so for the first five, six days, uh, I slept there six nights, so seven days total. From the beginning, they kept telling me they want to process my data, and if they're convinced that I don't work with any groups, they will let me go. They kept saying that they want to release me in a day or two. Initially, they said you can even catch your flight. All of that was nonsense. They didn't intend to. That was just to to make me want to talk faster. Uh, on the third day, when it became clear that that's a lie, I said, okay, clearly I'm here for a while. I want a lawyer. And they laughed. They said, you're in a matter of national security interest. You don't get a lawyer here. And then after five, six days, when they almost finished processing all my data, and they did, they, they were convinced that I don't work with any groups or I'm not a covert uh, internet activist. Then that's when they changed tactic again. So they told me, we're convinced, we know you don't work with any groups or do much these days, do anything basically, but you've done things in the past. You have, you have advised these groups or you have referred people to these groups which I had done back in 2012. Uh, anyway, that's not the point. Uh, so they told me that now what happens is we write a report, put it next to all your confessions, and the, you have to wait for trial. And everything goes to trial, and a judge gets to decide how much prison time you serve. It can be two months or two years or 10 years. It's up to the judge. So they made it clear that the whole we let you go in a day or two was never uh, true. There was That was just a lie. So they made it clear I'm going to be staying there for a while. Then they tried to uh, cut the deal. They said, unless you can post bail, we lift the ban on your exit so you can go back to your life. You are free to come and go as you want. We will keep the judiciary case on hold indefinitely, like for 10, 20 years, as long as you just continue to inform us of these friends of yours. 
just just hang out with them the way you do just go to dinner and drink with them and just inform us of where they are who they work with just whatever you know which is the kind of information they were getting out of me which incidentally is mostly public information if you follow these people on social media or linkedin right so did you take the deal yeah i took it without hesitation because i've been thinking through everything i knew i want to get out and tell the story oh you knew you you knew you were going to go public with this story eventually it never was my intention to be an informant. If I was getting out, I was going to make this public no matter what, even without a deal or not. But, by the way, let me just note as a sidebar for folks who may not know, you, you are a Canadian citizen, but as those of us of Iranian descent know that when you travel back to Iran, you have to travel on an Iranian passport. So Canada couldn't do anything about your case, right? Because you had entered Iran as an Iranian? Correct. I can imagine, yeah. Correct. Exactly. Uh, Canadian government was contacted by my employer and by my partner uh, they were keeping an eye on the situation, but otherwise couldn't do anything. And did your family, what What did your family know? Uh, I mean, how did they well, find out about this, or did the IRGC tell them? Point. That's a very good point. The IRGC, they kept telling me that, they kept telling me that they wanted to fetch me at a time that I'm alone just to not disturb my friends and family. So that bullshit, really, what it really means is they wanted me to disappear without anyone knowing what happened to me. However, they failed, so I became very lucky. So when they grabbed me on the street and uh, we were driving to my sister's residence to ca- to fetch my belongings, I told them that my, my niece's nanny will be there. And they told me to pretend that they are my friends. So we get to the apartment. I asked the nanny to go to the kids' room. And I'm walking in with one of these people to get my belongings. It just so happened that my brother-in-law was in the apartment. He sees I'm with this person. He knows immediately what's going on. He says goodbye and leaves the apartment and, and leaves the building from the back door. And then the head captor comes up and is informed that there was someone here who left. And then he's like, why did you leave? let him leave? He calls my brother-in-law and says, hey, you left something back home. Come back, get it. And my brother-in-law is like, I'm not stupid. I know what you're doing. And then they they ask him to come back, and he comes back. I mean, you can't you can't say no to the IRGC, right? So he comes back. They ask him to show them where the security cameras record things. So they make sure to destroy all the recordings, so there's no video footage of them. Wow. And then, so that's how my family knew where I am, but. Should my brother-in-law not have been in the apartment, I just had disappeared. And who knows when or what they would do to me. So when you when you cut this deal with them, back to you being in in, mm-hmm. the, in the prison and them offering you a deal, and I, I mean one of the 
you know, to answer one of the, uh, give you the chance to answer one of the suspicions I've seen on social media, et cetera, is, is well, why would the Iranian, uh, you know, the IRGC be so stupid as to cut a deal with a guy and then just let him go? Uh, what was the what were the mechanics of that? In other words, they 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 why would they trust that you're going to honor this deal? Well, that's a good question. They gamble. the The better question to ask is how else would they infiltrate the network of people in the West other than by coercing random people? Right. And hoping that they so they're, they're, they're counting so, on you being yeah. so scared shitless that you're just gonna yeah. do what 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 you have to do, and for the sake of yeah, and that's that's what most people do. That's the problem. We don't know how many people have accepted similar deal and are are following through. So you end up coming back to to the West. You end up coming back to Canada. You even go back to the states for a while, and you say right. you just. You just can't get back to work. Tell me about being uh, unable to work and what your mindset was like in the first months, first weeks coming back. Right. So it's a convoluted story. I tried to give you an overview. So for a month, I was in Lisbon coming back. I, I went straight to Lisbon which, where we, my partner and I, we have an apartment there. We were in the process of emigrating from the U.S. to Portugal. So I stayed there for a month. Initially, the last, the first 10 days I was alone. My partner was in the U.S. and I was so badly traumatized. I had become paranoid. I couldn't be alone, yet I couldn't talk to anyone. I, walking on the street or just in the apartment, the apartment is on a second floor, has a window to the street and I was feeling unsafe. I was feeling like someone might show up there because the IRGC had my address too. Uh, when walking on the street and a car was coming from my behind, I would get nervous. Uh, so I was completely paranoid for a while. And then uh, after the IRGC downloaded all my data from my Google, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn accounts, the accounts were shut down either because of automatic systems or because my employer or partner notified the companies. But my accounts were shut down, so I don't have access to my email or any Google service or Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, LinkedIn, Twitter. And remember, this is a couple of weeks after the Ukrainian airliner was shut down. And there were reports of even Iranian Canadians driving from Vancouver to Seattle were being detained and questioned at the U.S. border for hours. Of course, yeah. So, and talking to the Canadian government after when I was in Lisbon, I was under the impression and they confirmed that the U.S. intelligence services uh, community probably knows of my case. So I was really terrified of returning to the U.S. and being detained and questioned for days again, especially not having access to my accounts. Because on a regular day, entering the U.S. without being able to give them access to your social media, you risk detention. Right. So I was really terrified. I refused to come back to the U.S. until I get my accounts back. 
And the same time, my employer, Facebook, was saying they cannot give my Facebook account back until I show up in Seattle at the office. And Why is I that? said, look, because, because my work account at Facebook and my personal account at Facebook were linked. So I was like, I don't care about the job. I want my personal account back. Sorry, Facebook. It's one, there's one thing for the Canadian government to, to be trying to be involved. Facebook's, a, you know, one of the most powerful companies in the world. Did, 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 mm-hmm. did Facebook not get involved to sort of help out? Uh, could you not, well, I mean, were, not like, to be ridiculous, but couldn't you call Mark Zuckerberg or something and say, hey, you know, like, uh, <laughs> I, I need help here? My management chain was very supportive, but I was dealing with HR here. And to be honest, it felt to me like Facebook's corporate side, like the HR and lawyers, I think I'm under the impression that they were concerned that I might sue Facebook for what happened to me. They didn't know why I was taken hostage by the IRGC. I think they thought being employed by Facebook might be the reason and they were embracing for a lawsuit. So they demanded that I show up in Seattle office to get new devices before uh, they can reopen my account. That part is fine, the, the internal account. But it just so happened that the internal account for someone working at Facebook and the public account of that person the personal Facebook account I had, they were linked. They said they can't uh, re-enable my personal Facebook account without the other. And I said, I don't accept that. Go figure out. And then they went and figured out a way to do that. So uh, slowly I got my Facebook services back. I got my Google services back. And then a month after my return from Iran, on February 25, I returned to the U.S. At this point, you're, I mean, you talked about being um, severely, I mean, as you were just saying when you were in Lisbon, you're, you're paranoid, uh, you're yeah. worried, you're, you're, you're scared, you're freaked out. You also even talked about being suicidal. Um, what? Tell me about that. How did how did, how did that yeah. manifest itself? The suicidal part came later. So after a month, I get to the U.S. And then I travel to the U.S. with my partner, who is American. And then we went in New York, and I went to Seattle a couple of days later. She was to join me a week later. And the plan at this point for us, both of us wanted to be out of the U.S. faster because like we both saw ourselves as caught up between this stupid fight between Trump and the stupid IRGC. So we wanted out of the U.S. as fast as possible as well. So the plan was to come to Seattle for me to get new work equipment and then we pack the apartment and go. Ah. So, but then while she was still in New York for a week, Remember, the pandemic had hit Seattle already, and then there was the first case reported in New York, and my partner decided to go back to Lisbon. Right, so So you're dealing with COVID now. Yeah. 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 Right. So she goes to Lisbon. I'm in Seattle. It's March, beginning of March, and the Facebook offices are shut down already. 
And then it takes a whole month for Facebook to give me new work equipment because the office was closed. And while waiting for that, the international borders are closed. So now I'm stuck in Seattle in an apartment alone, self-quarantining. And by by the way, other other than your family, your immediate family, your partner, and your employer, Nobody knows this story, right? At this point, in in in, in March, in right, right. So right. the IRGC, their biggest concern was that my family doesn't tell anyone. Uh-huh. So while I started telling friends, we didn't go to the media yet. Yes, right. You know, um, and so you were going to tell me about. Uh, so, so is it when you're there, sequestered, quarantined in Seattle, that you get so lonely that you? You almost yeah, feel like so you want to I'm end trying it? to get back to work. Uh, all of March, I waited for equipment. And then, like many other people in tech, <laughs> during the quarantine, I started baking and cooking more and pastries and pizza and distracting myself with these things. And after a month of that, my mind just, my unconscious just tells me, hey, you're wasting your time. There's other, there's bigger things to deal with. So I hit a deep depression. And and I couldn't get work done, mo- partly because of this, partly because the industry partners, Microsoft, Adobe, Microsoft in this case, was making it really hard for me to be working efficiently. And then the BLM, the Black Lives Matter uprisings happened. And uh, what happened then, first, uh, I was living downtown Seattle. Yes. So outside my apartment, it was war zone all the businesses were boarded up there was uh, just police fighting the protesters and then the some of the anarchists are like hijacking the protest for personal gain yes. and looting yes. and so i start talking to my friends my iranian friends about these things and suddenly i realized that in the past two years mostly because of my partner my views on a lot of these things are racism and sexism and the police and civil liberties. My views have changed a lot. Mm-hmm. And I immediately realized how my, most of my friends have this classic, make these classic mistakes of, for example, blaming the protesters for, for dis- disrupting the peace of society while completely ignoring the unjust hurt and uh, pain that these protesters have been bearing for 400 years. Sure. This pattern of behavior to the, it's, a, it's a classic case of victim blaming. So people tend to blame the victim for raising their voice while ignoring the, the actual allegations or the actual abuse. And is that the part you, you identified with? Because it was interesting in your in your post yes. that you wrote for Medium about this. Basically, you're outing yourself about this this story, this ordeal, uh, a couple of, two or three weeks ago. Uh, you, you actually talk about the Black Lives Matter protests affecting you, and I wondered what the intersection there was, was between what's yeah. been happening with BLM and your, and your story. It just made me more determined to out all my abuses, not just the IRGC. And it was like my subconscious, unconscious telling me, you cannot have peace of mind. You cannot 
go back to work as usual until you confront these people. And by these people, I mean the IRGC story as well as all my other abusers. So I got into this series of fights. Are your other abusers uh, people who don't believe you? Is that what you mean? Well, no. One of, one of them, as I said, I, I'm on a, in a fight with professional, like uh. professionally, uh, Microsoft just blocking. Uh, Microsoft has been participating in what I call unfair competition, which okay. is also illegal. But for years, I've been ignoring it. I've been trying to work it out. I've been trying to just work with them. Whereas I realized, like every other abuse, I want to shout out and out them publicly. And I know that when I do that, the first reaction, the most reaction I get is going to be people blaming me for raising my voice instead of listening to the content. Do you think that that's universal or do you think that's Iranians in particular? No, no, this is a universal human reaction. Uh -huh. and in this case, I'm not even talking about Iranians. I'm talking about the type industry. I wrote a long document earlier, like in June, about, about basically rights and society. And so in a society to... If you demand that the peace of society be maintained, every person is responsible to deal with any complaints. So if you have one group abusing, one minority abusing another minority, and the abuse demand justice, it's everybody's duty. So it sounds like for a guy who says that you were never an activist, the last few months have turned you into an activist. Well, it turned me to thinking about justice yeah. and about society. And then you can call me an activist now. But uh, I started just wanting to right wrongs that I saw personally. You've made the decision to speak out. before. I mean, and, 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 and let me get to that in just a second. But before we do that... Uh, you there's a, there's something important to, uh, to note, which is that in June, um, so this is a couple months ago. This is before you just came up with your mm -hmm. story. You you actually heard from the regime again, the, 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 from the, right. the IRGC. What did what did you hear, and what did they want? Right. So while this transformation is happening to me, uh, and I'm trying to gather the courage to make the IRGC story public, and June 13 or 14, one Sunday morning, I received that dreaded message, which is a coded message sent on Instagram, but clearly it's my head captor trying to make contact to establish the connection. And I ignore it. I called my partner, told her, well, that message just arrived. And we discuss what we're going to do. We decide that we're going to find a couple of journalist friends. And then I draft something and we review it. And we find the best venue for it. I publish it. So that was the plan. Uh, let me take a breath. It's okay, yeah. <laughs> so while this is happening... And I've got to say, beginning of June, being 
uh, not being able to work, I asked my psychiatrist to give me some Adderall. And on the Adderall, I became manic. So I just upped my professional battles. When Facebook HR questions my freedom of speech on my Twitter, I decide to quit Facebook. And then I decide I want to be out of the US. And I just pack and move to Canada. I do my two weeks of self-quarantine. I move in with my sister's family in Edmonton on August 3rd. And we were still unpacking when another message comes from my Iranian sister saying that a letter from the judiciary arrived demanding that I show up for further questioning within five days. This is all, as this is all culminating. I, I'm thinking it's got to be weighing on you. You, you. It was interesting what you, that you said that even back to being in prison, you knew that you were going to eventually go public with this story. Yeah. But it's got to be weighing on you that what are the implications going to be not just for you, but for yeah. your family in Canada, your family back in Iran, your family around the world, you, what, what your partner, you know. Who, so how... how did you did you tell them that you're going to go public with this? How did you how do you finally make the the well, decision yeah, and press send on that medium uh, post that you that you put out there? So back in June when that letter came with my partner, we planned how to go public. Uh, which so the original plan was to find journalists and work together. We didn't get to that plan. Uh, I happened to just doing myself when I received that letter. Um, but I had also notified my Iran family, like my Iranian sister. I told them I'm going to do this, just a heads up. And they just, they were supportive of whatever I think I need to do. And uh, so, yeah, eventually when that letter arrived, I just sat down and wrote that thing and posted it without hesitating it just i knew this is the time and then uh, part of what i'm doing is yes uh, on the surface it looks like i'm endangering my family in iran but no in reality it will protect them because let's look at it i wasn't going to be a spy the irgc has access to my family in iran physical access so they could they would they were going to no question. They were going to harass them to put force on me. And I didn't have any leverage. I didn't have any way to push back. Gotcha. By going public, now I have a worldwide voice. I have a voice that will be heard by millions of people. So now if they harass my family, it will be in the news the next day. So that's how I'm protecting them. How have you been coping now psychologically? I mean, did did coming out about this make things easier uh, now that your story has been public? It, it definitely has been. Like, first, uh, being back to Canada, like not being in the U.S., being surrounded by family, not being alone, those helped a lot. That's how I got the courage and energy to make this public. And the support I've been getting 
that definitely has helped a lot. I feel a lot better. Now, the part that I hadn't or haven't moved on from yet is just my failed personal relationship. That one, that one really still hurts a lot. But for the most part, I'm feeling a lot better. I'm uh, dedicating my time to things that matter, like playing with my niece or making pickles with my mom or cooking dinner with my brother-in-law. But, so, it, but, it, but it's fair to say this has been between the the jailing, the solitary confinement, the the, the ordeal, uh, the losing your job or, or departing yeah. from your job, uh, your relationship. I mean, this has been a time of seismic change for you. It's a life-changing experience. It's a life-changing experience. Go ahead. I was just going to say... Uh, it's been very painful, but I'm, I have no doubt I've come out of this as a much better person. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's profound. And I, I, you're right, you're still in it. So I, I but, but I, I, I'm heartened to hear you say that. You, you said in your Medium piece you wrote a couple of weeks ago that, you, that some people will probably question your sanity. Uh, I guess for, yep. for going public or for uh, for even for the, the nature of the story, uh, do, do they? Do they question your sanity? They did. They, many of them continue to do. Uh, so first, I, I self-disclosed there that I was taking Adderall in June and most of July, and that pushed my hypermania into full of mania. So I was manic for over a month. So I did make decisions during that period that most other people would say was caused with my mania, uh, caused by my mania. But like quitting my job, moving to Canada, I still believe those were the best decisions of my life. And people, so this is the problem, Gian. Let me. It's frustrating. Some of the people close to me, even who believe I'm the smartest person they know that believe that I make the best decisions when it comes to when I'm actually doing my day-to-day decision-making, they keep questioning me. They keep telling me uh, to slow down, to rethink it, to not do it. It's frustrating to be constantly being told by people close to you and your loved ones to, to just that you're wrong, that you're reacting, that mm-hmm. you need to chill down. Mm-hmm. It's not everybody, absolutely not, but it's just a drag. And I've gone into this fight. Now, let me, another p- way to put it, now that my story is public, now that I've said things that the IRGC doesn't, now that I've said things that the Iranian regime doesn't like, I have a freedom that vast majority of Iranians don't have I can say everything I don't like about the Iranian I was going to say you know you know people <laughs> including your your family or close friends people people are scared it's scary everything yeah. you've talked about no. is scary and this whole situation is scary and these people spying and interrogating and abducting people in the street and taking them to solitary confinement all of that is scary stuff so you, you can't blame those around you necessarily I would think for saying whoa are you sure you know uh, um, I wonder what you I mean you alluded to this right at the top of the interview and I'm glad you did because it it, it says that you're open to being asked about it I mean there are people you know this 
uh, and I'm guessing not just on social media, but certainly I've seen them on social media. And and mm-hmm. you can take that with a grain of salt because people say everything about everybody on social media. But there are people who don't believe you. They just don't believe mm-hmm. you or they think your story is exaggerated or they mm-hmm. think that you are, you know, this is some call for attention. Um, yeah. which I can only imagine must be difficult for you. Um, how do you deal with that? A lot of the Iranians outside, you know, like they became disillusioned by the revolution and now they've got stuck in this mindset that anyone opposing the IRGC or the Islamic regime might should have a different agenda of themselves. So, especially those who don't know my career and my otherwise successful life, they question why I'm doing this, or maybe it's because I want to get an asylum, or maybe it's because I want to get attention, or it's like, so I just ignore them. It takes a while. It, initially, it takes a toll on your mind, but you have to learn to just ignore them. That's the absolute minority but they are very vocal minority on the other hand i do get constant messages of support from people i know and i don't like total strangers they send me the most lovely supportive letters and that's what keeps me going beza what's what are your next steps um what are your immediate next steps and i suppose um well, yeah. Why don't I ask you that first? I'll go before I before I yeah. ask you the next question. Go ahead. Yeah. So my immediate next step is I'm fighting the IRGC now, and then I was on Twitter. I started immediately seeing the IRGC puppets attacking me and trying to discredit me. It's funny the way they would discredit. They try to discredit me is by posing as opposition accounts and just spreading this rumor that I'm an insider with the IRGC. That's how they want to discredit me. (laughs) Again, as I said, now that I have the freedom to speak freely about them, I'm going to do, I'm going to put my analytical and mental capability on fighting this fight. That's one of the fights I will continue to fight. But I don't want to spend the rest of my life just on that cause. Well, I, 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 I was going to say, you, you are someone, and and I, I think you're absolutely right, that for those who may question your story, um, they should look at your lifetime of work. Uh, and and it, it, it takes a lot of commitment, takes a lot of focus, it takes a lot of um, uh, intelligence and, and talent to have gotten where you've gotten doing all the things you do. And I've got to, I've got to wonder, I mean, it takes passion, that passion you had as a nine-year-old kid for, for uh, yeah. texts and, and for tech and, and for computers and for fonts and all of that, that cannot have dissipated. So is this your life now for now doing do, do uh, fight, no, fighting that's this not fight? the only part uh, so for a year or two so as i said i started the professional fight against microsoft and to some extent adobe to fix the industry to to so i what i realized is that my technical work how much code i write is been i've been slowed down by microsoft and adobe's illegal activities so i started fighting that 
I guess if I were to to end off and try and um, summarize things or have you summarize mm-hmm. things, what what would your message be to the world? What what would you, if you could put mm-hmm. it briefly, what do you want people to know, people of Iranian descent in particular? Well, we all have a common goal, which is to bring down the Islamic regime. But can we please stop attacking each other, attacking the other opposition people, <laughs> just because we don't agree on everything? Like, can we focus on the common goal, which is to bring down the Islamic regime? And I believe to do that, we need to bring down the IRGC. The IRGC is like a cancer that has overtaken that country. The government is is inconsequential, is not, doesn't have any power. So can we focus on the common goal, which is to bring down the IRGC? And can we ignore our differences? I guess it goes without saying that you've um, resigned yourself, as many of us have, <laughs> the, to, the, to, the, to the idea that you're not going to be able to visit Iran anytime soon again. Not anytime soon. That was clear even without going public. Bedad Esfahabad, I thank you for taking so much time. Thank you for sharing your story, and I hope you take care of yourself and your family in uh, beautiful Edmonton, the city of champions, uh, in the meantime. Thank you, Gian. Thanks for giving me this time to get my thoughts out. Hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, see Bye. Bye-bye. Behdad Esfahbad, we reached him in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada today. That's Haida. Ruzai Roshan, Bright Days. Um, you know, the composer of that song is a guy named, the music part of it is a guy named Fadi Zoland. And uh, those of you who know who Fadi Zoland, uh, who he is, you will know what I'm about to say. But this guy has not only, he didn't only write that song, which was a hit, he's written uh, numerous hits for all. Basically, all of the Persian, the, the icons of Persian popular music, Dariush, Ebi, Gugush, Haideh, uh, Moin, uh, he, he just, he's like a machine. He's currently in Los Angeles. Uh, Fadi Zulan will be joining us for a feature interview in the coming uh, couple of weeks on Rook, and I'm very much looking forward to that. And by the way, he is 
uh, I, I mean, he's a master, of course, but there's a, a kind of a difficult, heartbreaking underside of this too, which is the ongoing lack of compensation and appreciation uh, in the Persian cultural industries for uh, artists, writers, composers. So while this guy, if he was in the West, if he had written a hit for Celine Dion, let alone a hundred like he has, uh, he would be living a, a rich life forever. He lives quite modestly because he has not been compensated for writing virtually any of those songs, at least in the in the kind of way he should be. So, But a master, Shia, I know you're excited about this too, to have yes, Farid Zulad coming on. He's a legend. You know, he's my idol. And yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. yeah. Um, as you can hear, the Rook Roundtable has reconvened. That's uh, Groovy Shy over there. Captain Reza, hello. Hello, sir. The fabulous Keon. Hello. And our special guest this week, Ali Reza Tahiri. Ali Reza wrote his doctoral dissertation at the University of Cambridge. He provides psychoanalytic psychotherapy in private practice in Toronto. Ali Reza also teaches, writes articles in the field, and regularly presents at international conferences. He has also recently written a book, a forthcoming book entitled Hegelian Lacanian Variations on Late Modernity, Spectre of Madness. Ali Reza, thank you for being here again. Thank you very much, Jan. We thought that you might be an interesting guest uh, following this interview with Beto Despach, but uh, not to type cast, cast him in any way, but uh, to, to zoom out and talk about the, the psychological and emotional implications of the kind of uh, the kinds of events we've just heard about in terms of uh, um, the, the way the uh, government of Iran, uh, the regime, if you will, uh, uh, meets out punishment, whether it be psychological or in some cases uh, physical torture or confinement, etc. This is not an entirely new story we're hearing about, and we want to talk about the psychological dimensions of that. But uh, let me just ask you, first of all, having just sat here as we did that interview, uh, what are your reflections on hearing what you just heard from uh, Behdad? Uh, the thing that st- stood out most for me was the uh, optimism that he had, uh, a moment that you actually um, characterized as heartening uh, when he said that um, this whole experience, if he manages to come out of it, will make him a better person. Uh I think you responded uh, somewhat emotionally as well, uh, which was understandable. And uh, I think for me, that was the highlight of the um, of the talk, uh, at least from a psychoanalytic perspective. And why is that? Uh, because it, it gives us an idea of the fine line that separates a curse from grace uh, for a human being. Um, I think that's one of the things that distinguishes humans from uh, other animals, and this may sound old-fashioned, but I do think there is a dimension of being that is particular to humans, which is that our existence can be cursed by events. Uh, Clinically, we call those events traumas, but at the same time as we are vulnerable to curse, we are also uh, capable of being graced. Um, Now, an older religious language had called it that way. Mm -hmm. And of course, with the demise of religions, uh, that language is now somewhat obsolete. And uh, though I myself am an atheist, I do feel like the old religious language does capture something of the human, which was very beautifully captured in that moment when he said, I will come out of this a better person. Mm. And he's really um, uh, giving expression to the miracle 
by which a curse can be transformed into uh, a grace. And I think even miracles, as naive as it may sound and infantile and childish, I think that miracles do exist in the human realm. And uh, somebody getting cured from a neurosis or from a psychosis even more or uh, from an inhibition or from any kind of a symptom, let alone from a trauma. Uh, any kind of trauma, of course, is uh, very difficult. But anyone being able to survive something like that of any type, really, a hardship, that to me is of the order of a miracle. What does a miracle mean in materialist terms, meaning not in religious terms? It means being able to achieve something that the conditions in which you were in didn't make it seem like it would have necessarily happened. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it wasn't entirely a surprise, of course, yeah. while I was doing the interview to hear about his trauma, because he's been yeah. very open about that. that of course. In his official statement yeah. uh, a couple of weeks ago, his first going public, he talked mm-hmm. about, and as I did in the introduction, that he's uh, uh, this has been difficult mm-hmm. on his mental state. Yeah. Did, did the trauma that I'm guessing the trauma that he spoke of based on this incident mm-hmm. and these incidents and, and the events mm-hmm. of the last few months, uh, including even now going public, I, I'm guessing the fact that trauma he spoke of is not a surprise to you. Well, you know, uh, these things happen um, there and uh, many other places. No, it's not necessarily a surprise. W- what is, um, you know, uh, what happens after is what's going to be a surprise or not. What the decisions he makes. So he's already made some decisions, of course. Uh, and what the effects, how he, you know, uh, what will happen. From what I understand, he's with family now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, those are the types of things that uh, will make something universal, like a trauma of this type. It happens, as you say, very commonly. Uh, but it's the decisions he will make henceforth that will make this universal thing into something singular and particular to his destiny or to anyone else having any other type of well, trauma uh, of that a, type. As yeah. an Iranian yeah. who yeah. can't be unfamiliar with yeah. stories of, yeah, of, of, of difficulty coming, you know, yeah. especially with regards to the regime or, say, the IRGC, yeah. was there part of you there that was kind of through, through that going – here we go again, you know, not in a dismissive way, but in a heartbreaking way. Like we've heard these kinds of stories and and I don't even know where you begin with that as a yeah. psychologist. Yeah, well, you know, you're right. Where does one begin hearing something like that and the difficulties he went through? And the first thing that, of course, brings a ray of hope is that he's speaking. And I'm not speaking specifically about coming out into the media speaking, but he's speaking to loved ones. He's speaking to some people. He's having a dialogue. You know, it's not a suffering that is private. And that gives a ray of hope uh, for his particular uh, Sounds like it was. What he, was he was just saying he was in Seattle for a while. And yep. it, it sounds like it's a good thing that he's gone to Edmonton because he of was he was sort of um, uh, sequestered in, in Seattle a, a alone for a while. Um, but, uh, okay, well, let me just uh, go around the table quickly and, and get some reactions before I ask you a few more questions. Uh, Shia, what what did you feel while you were listening to Beta? Uh, actually, it reminds myself that you know, something similar happened to me wha- when I was in Tehran, and so we we were banned from performing. Your band, your band day y- show. Y- yes, we we banned from performing, and uh, some at some day somebody called me and Taha to, you have to come to our uh, office 
tomorrow at 7 a.m. Sorry, Shai, when they ban you from performing, how do you even find out about that? Do you get a letter or does somebody come to your door? You, and say, no, you have, to get a, you have to get a permission to have a concert. Uh-huh, so yeah. as long as they don't get a permission. You're basically banned. Yes. Yeah, okay. And uh, they called me and my brother and uh, the guy said, you have to come to our office tomorrow, 7 a.m. Okay, long story short. Um, you know, they, um, it's not, uh, it's not always the way that they act, uh, to you make, make some trauma for you. The trauma for me is that the trust issue, I mean, after that uh, meeting, I don't have trust to literally anybody, even my brother, the, the information that they have they had about some of my personal details you know i was shocked and that is the trauma for me that i cannot trust to anybody after that meeting was there something in particular that they uh say i mean do they say for example you're gonna be followed or or no for example they say so uh how do you know this guy and at that morning that you went to his place or her place um why why for example you speak about that thing and i was like how do you know Mm. that you know and even though you're living in canada here now you (laughs) still feel like i I don't trust you (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, Shia. <laughs> no, re- no. Uh, you're not singling me out. No, it's a good thing we have a no, therapist forg- here. No, forgive me. I, I, I really, I don't yeah. trust anybody. And yeah, that that's my issue, you know. And it, it, it hurts me. It, it Ali bothers Reza, Ali Reza, me. Ali what do you f- think, or what do you when you hear that? Well, you know, it's uh, obviously um, very sad because trust is uh, um, the only. Uh, the the principal condition for a human to be able to uh, live uh, a life of uh, fulfilled self-expression, uh, and if you can't trust uh, those who um, uh, you're surrounded by, it uh, slowly uh, isolates a person into progressively more inhibited uh, way of life, um, and uh, of course that's a reality in many parts of the world. Uh, and of course uh, we, we we saw it uh, in this case and um, in what just uh, Cheyenne just said. You know, it's about artistic expression that is getting uh, stifled. And here, uh, he's not going to trust. He's not going to trust you as long as you call him Shion. Shia, Shia. Oh, I'm sorry about that. It uh, okay. doesn't have noon. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Reza, do you do you want to weigh in? Yeah, I'm. I'm trying to based on what Shia said and what uh, uh, Behtad has gone through. I'm trying to think. Maybe it's a strategic um, approach from the regime to create mistrust and division amongst people. Because let's say. They do that to every other um, relatively well-known figure that lives outside of Iran, goes back to visit, and then they bring that trauma back with them to their community. Mm-hmm. It's that's that 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 and that creates the sort of division that they probably hope for, because as a as a community, as a collective community, is when um, um, and I'm not saying like opposition community but nec- but just as a collective community that are together uh, w- we would be strong uh, whereas individuals that don't trust one another are the, are the 
are the only people we're that have trouble we're gonna, operating as a collective exactly to, and yeah, yeah. very easily controlled so it's it's very it's mind-boggling actually to me that uh, that 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 may perhaps maybe that's a strategic plan. what did you uh what did you do, do you do you have any reflections on what you felt as you were listening to i mean you i i know you so i know yeah. you've been through a lot and i don't i don't need to uh you don't need to volunteer anything that no. you don't want to volunteer but but uh i'm curious what you felt when you were listening to Bahdad tell um, his story I, I i felt for him in a sense that well i've never uh had a problem like in the the, the like Behdad had with the regime per se because I left when I was uh, 18 years old but coming to Canada um, I ran into a lot of issues in in China in East Asia and whatnot so I did trying to up, find asylum exactly yeah. and then I did end up spending like two three months in a jail in China in um, Shanghai and um, and 12 hours in solitary and whatnot <laughs> and uh, the, pe- the the shell shock after that it was um, the the it was in a it was in a way um, hidden inside me for without me knowing it I thought I just it was a period in my life that I went through it and it was over but that phase never actually gone away mm. and I realized that a couple of uh, last year or a couple of years ago where um, I was in, like there was an there was an incident an event in my life that brought out that sort of PTSD inside me and I, I just couldn't sleep I couldn't eat yeah. I was afraid for my life and I saw a, a, a psychologist and then we try to get down to the root of the problem and he said that he this may very well may be related to the fact that you experience something relatively similar and now you're afraid of losing that freedom again going back so I'm um, uh, I feel for a Behdad I'm just curious and I wanted to get um, Ali uh, Ali's opinion on this as well to see how one should cope with such an event even though the elements may not be the the evidence may not be as clear um, after the fact. Okay, uh, yeah, I mean, as, as your own experience um, uh, shows very well, um, trauma is o- often happens in a kind of two-phase uh, process. Uh, it's a kind of temporality that is generally you know, happens in two. Uh, so, for instance, uh, you know, t- taking a classic example of a child that is maybe uh, abused or uh, or sexually seduced in a certain way, the effects of it won't necessarily show and generally won't show the next day. So, if a seven-year-old child is in any way touched or or or, or uh, assaulted or harassed in any kind of way, it's not. 24 hours later or a week later that you're going to see an ill child. What will happen is when that child reaches uh, adolescence, uh, the ascension to mature sexuality will become very problematic for them because their encounter with sexuality in that particular hypothetical case happened too early. But it, that's a kind of a, the structure of trauma is that uh, it's not necessarily the time of the um, uh, of the transgression or the time of the trauma that is the traumatic time. That's also the challenge of it is that it becomes uh, something, the ripple of which you may only see a bit later at the time of another event, which may not look traumatic. It may just be something ordinary. You're in an elevator all of a sudden and the elevator stops. Nothing drastic. You know, usually elevators stop and they start 30 seconds later. But then henceforth, 
you have a claustrophobia or something right. like that. Uh, and then you look back and you're like, well, you were put in jail or something like that happened. And then the source, the root of the actual traumatic event uh, is discovered with almost no effects at that time, but something really uh, terrible later uh, at the event of something minor. What do you, what do you think of... Um uh, Reza's uh, uh, point where he was saying the implications of having a bunch of people walking around in the diaspora who've spent time in Evin, uh, how that affects our us as a community. Is that something that, uh, that resonates for you, that, that that would be an issue that would uh, infect or affect our community? I think so. I mean, uh, as Shaya said, he cannot trust you, and, and perhaps he meant it partly in jest, but but perhaps, you know, the, nothing is more serious than when we joke. Uh, and uh, so in a sense, yes, I think that, you know, all of us here, maybe we're not uh, paranoid. I don't think he was joking. He's yeah. looking oh. at me right now with no, well, there you go. as uh, you speak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think it says it all. Uh, and, and of course, um, you know, if if we look at the the story uh, of of uh, Behtad and and many others, um, the the grounds for this so-called paranoia. I say so-called paranoia because, well, you know, it, there, there's it's not a completely groundless uh, idea. Um, you know, that will of course affect uh, relations uh, between people. And uh, you know, what's interesting is uh, with Shaya, you have a uh, let's say a, a mistrust, but nonetheless you keep working and so somewhere your faith is overriding mm. your uh, mistrust and I think that's very important to keep uh, to keep faith uh, victorious there can I just say for the record I don't trust Shia either <laughs> I trust Keon but oh. not, not uh, Shia what an, why do you trust me I over know. Shia I'm, I'm being you just look I, like I, the I kind always, of I'm person always, based on what I'm hearing you guys all have some serious issues <laughs> <laughs> yes I'm we just, do I'm going through my mind like have I had any kind of traumatic <laughs> so, so that in that case uh, if you haven't uh, had those issues uh, the, the run into that this kind of thing what, what was your feeling from I, uh, this I'm or what question do you have for well, I, I was going to say, I'm generally a very sensitive person. So if something like that ever happened to me, I don't think I would ever be able to overcome that. I think I would be in my room, in bed, not trusting anybody like Shai, but maybe more seriously. I, I, so I, my question to you, Ali Reza, how do you overcome that? That kind of paranoia that uh, Behtad was going through, not, you know, looking at the window, not... Tr- how do you the paranoia piece is is very powerful and you can see how people can become paranoid in cases like this uh, it, w- it was just a week ago we had or you know a couple of weeks ago we had dr abbas milani on the show and he was talking about how deep this regime goes in terms of its infiltration into the diaspora um folks pretending to be royalists uh, against leftists pretending to be leftists against royalists uh, uh dr milani talked about twelve thousand people whose sole responsibility is to create dissension in social media. This is at the hands of this uh, current regime and what they're doing. So how are we supposed to deal with the breach of trust and, and I suppose the potential paranoia that can spawn from well, that? Well, yeah, that's the, uh, you know, it's that uh, there's no recipe for it really because it's really a matter of, of faith and faith is really a leap you know, it's something that Kierkegaard, a famous uh, Danish philosopher, said. It's not something you can rationalize and give a prescription for. It's just that at some point, 
you realize that the self-incarceration that paranoia has put you in is more painful than the suspicion and you just sort of take the leap and you gamble and uh you know and and ultimately we all as humans make that gamble you know on the first day of school right you're in the comfort of home and your mother's embrace and uh you decide all of a sudden that well i have to do it i have to go to this place called school and i don't know anybody and you assume all the others know each other every kid thinks all the other kids are a big community that are happy together and that they are the outsider and then they soon find out oh the others too were and that starts to break everyone's eyes and at some point you know and i think that leap of faith is uh, something you know shaya is taking every day but it seems like you know you know the the suspicion the fear and you know uh, comes back but then you take that leap um and i think that that if if you cannot take that leap um it, it does uh force you into radical isolation which um uh is an experience for a human being akin to psychosis or madness to be uh, utterly severed from community yeah. what are the implications of the rest of us listening to stories like bad thoughts i had a a friend of mine a couple of days ago um, I was talking to, I was telling him that Beth Todd's going to come on the show and he said, I actually know him. He knows him from the tech sector. He also works in tech and I, I know him. Uh, we used to uh, hang out when he used to live in, in Toronto uh, and he said, just hearing about Beth Todd's story, I guess he had written, he read, read what uh, Beth Todd had written or something, has dissuaded me from for sure from going to iran even though i'm not an activist i don't do anything i have got no reason listening to that i'm reminded that i just don't want to i i don't want to go there literally and and figuratively because uh i'm too afraid now of something so there can be ripples of uh, i guess it's a warning cry or uh, but um it can create paranoia or or fear in the rest of us of what will happen to me if i go right Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, paranoia, fear, these types of emotions that separate people are very contagious. And uh, giving too much... um, uh, Let's say giving too much power to those types of feelings makes those in power seem even more powerful. And that's why I think it's something that we should not resist, no matter what the situation is. Uh, Any form of power has a lack in it. Uh, All power is uh, somewhere fallible. Uh, And um, the more you believe that, oh, it's a a conspiracy, they're they're doing this, they're doing that, and all of that might be true, but nonetheless, I think that uh, it is a human responsibility to take that leap of faith and to continue working collectively with others and to battle it somehow and not to fall prey too much to the idea that nothing can be done. Uh, I have to inhibit and limit my own life uh, in the face of this uh, monster of uh, power, authority, um, uh, etc. And, and I think that's, I don't know if uh, anyone here is familiar with the work of Slavoj Žižek. He's a, uh, a very uh, interesting uh, contemporary philosopher and he says uh, you know uh, it's like those in those cartoons where you have a cat kind of running off of a cliff right and then as he's running off a cliff he's still kind of floating <laughs> above yeah. until when until he looks down at the moment the cat looks down that's when he falls and it's the moment that you show to power I know you've got nothing under you. That's the moment power collapses. Now, that power could be whatever. It could be the education system. It could Mm. be uh, something political. It could be otherwise. But the point is to not let the paranoia of power overtake the faith in your own power. 
to um, you and, know continue and, living. And just to, to get a sense from you, there are people. I mean, we discussed a little bit in this interview about uh, how he's got people who are um, distrusting his story or detractors, or you know, uh, yeah. those are. And, and there will be people who say, "Oh, I'm not sure. I believe this story. Maybe, probably he has some kind of mental issue, yeah. uh, since he's admitted to you know this being difficult for him emotionally, yeah. mentally." Uh, what do you react to? How do you react to somebody saying something like that? Well, I think jumping to any conclusion in these types of hazy situations is, of course, uh, the worst thing one can do because things like this do happen uh, all over the world. And so to immediately assume because of the uh, extraordinary nature of his experience that it must be a lie uh, or that it must be a fabulation or even worse, a delusion is uh, quite unfair. I think everyone has the right to be heard. Uh, I mean, at the end, it's not such an extraordinary story. No. I mean, he's not saying he was abducted And he's by not aliens. the first person to say, tell this story. I mean, right. it's not like yeah. we, we, this is the first time we've heard this about the uh, IRGC. In fact, it's exactly what we hear. So it, uh, did, does anybody else want to chime in before we go? I, go ahead. I just have a question. Uh, I wanted to know know for and this is for my own sake what is the exact definition of and is there is that exact definition of post-traumatic stress disorder or shell shock and what why why is and is there a is is there a difference between shell shock and ptsd um i don't think there is a difference from what i know shell shock is just the older term for it uh they then called it the war neuroses uh it was also called for a time and then the the most popular common uh, current term for it is PTSD standing short as you said for post-traumatic stress disorder um, uh, you know rather than a definition I can give an explanation which is that as human beings we create a world uh, for ourselves based on language ideas values thoughts ideologies identifications fantasies we create a world for ourselves that way a, a world that has some consistency and more importantly a place for ourselves in that world with this type of narrative with this fiction this fiction by which we create a world is what keeps us sane so it sounds paradoxical but we are kept sane not by truth but by fiction where we need to live in a kind of the fiction of you know, uh, parental love, you know, because parental love is very complicated. Of course, it exists. It's not entirely a fiction, but it's not an absolutely pure love. It's a complex love, like all love that is truly love is complicated. Now, when these fictions fall apart because of an experience that it cannot account for, that's what, how I define uh, a trauma. A trauma breaks those uh, fictions by which you create a world and dislodges you from the place you happily occupied or maybe unhappily but in a kind of safe and stable way occupied in that world for yourself and then it forces you into a radical process of re-narrativization rewriting it all over again that's the enriching part and that's why uh, he said I will become a better person I think we can change the word better for enriched uh, a person you know as Nietzsche's famous line uh, which was then taken up in a song I believe uh, I forget by whom but uh, whatever does not kill me or whatever does not destroy me will only make me stronger I think the idea is you know if something doesn't kill you it does nonetheless rupture the symbolic coordinates by which you hold your world together and you can 
recreate a world. And speech is fundamental in that process of working through. Never does a person heal in silence. Time does not heal all wounds. You need the work of, of speech, of understanding, of remembering, of being understood, of love, support, many things. Time in itself is um, uh, powerless in, in the healing process. Ali Reza Tahiri, thank you so much. It's been very, it's been educational, informational, and and um, so much appreciated to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Psychoanalyst, psychotherapist, and uh, University of Cambridge graduate, uh, Ali Reza Tahiri. His forthcoming book is called Hegelian Lacanian Variations on Late Modernity, um, A Specter of Madness. I mean... This isn't going to be the air in the airport bookshops. Uh, this, uh, this is like I, a. <laughs> I wish, but no. Unfortunately, it will probably not make it to that. Uh, <laughs> just, just next to Michelle Obama's book, this will be the, <laughs> the best. One. It's, uh, it's, it's fascinating to hear you talk. Thank you so much. I hope you come back. Uh, likewise, thank you so much for having me. It's time for letters of the week. Okay, so last week on episode 39, we had part two of the Rook series commemorating the 40th anniversary of the death of the Shah of Iran. So we had two feature interviews on that episode, the first one with historian Andrew Scott Cooper, the author of The Fall of Heaven, and then the second one with historian Mohammad Amini, the author of The Time and Life of Ahmad Kastravi. They each discussed their take on the Shah from their own unique perspectives, as well as events leading up to the 1979 revolution. So we had quite a few people write in about that episode, as you can imagine. Uh, first, we have Garshasp Nodan on YouTube wrote, Hats off to Mr. Andrew Scott Cooper. I really enjoyed his words and take on the late Shah and Iran. Nice episode. And I'm happy that Jian challenges the guests with his questions. Please consider inviting Amir Tahiri to your show sometime. All right. Thank you okay. for that. Thank you. Uh, and then we have Amir Javadi on YouTube wrote, I appreciate your team's great work in building a bridge between Iranians around the world and special thanks to your guests. I wish we could watch your interviews instead of listening. Mm. Hmm. Stay tuned. Yeah. That's maybe. right. Maybe. That's right. A little treat Thank for you for eyes. that, uh, Amir Javadi. Okay, and then we have Mehdad Sadiqi wrote, Thank you, Jian. Your work is really an asset for the Iranian di diaspora. Thank you, yeah. Mehdad. And then we have Ali Li. Ali One more time. We have Ali Khalili. He wrote saying, I was wondering what your criteria is for choosing slash inviting people for an interview. Do you already have a scope? If yes, would be great to clarify that. About Mr. Cooper's part, I found a lot of the emotional parts that he used as evidence during his interview was contradictory to his theory that numbers, and in brackets he has, I would read as more rigid and objective information, matter a lot when analyzing such a complex and multidimensional phenomenon. I found... What did you say? A lot of emotional parts that he used as evidence during his were contradictory to his, to his theory, theory that numbers. Mm. What does that mean? Uh, the numbers that matter numbers a lot. What's are, he getting at? I don't get it. I'm, I don't understand what he's saying. To be perfectly well, honest, you pick this letter, Kian. What's, <laughs> what's he getting at? I, read it to me again. 
Okay, one more time. Yeah. So I was uh, skip that part. About Mr. Cooper's part, yes. I found a lot of the emotional parts that he used as evidence during his interview was contradictory to his theory that numbers matter a lot when analyzing such a complex and multi-dimensional phenomenon. I remember oh, Andrew Scott Cooper discussed how they inflated the numbers of people that the Shah was executing. Yeah, and, but, you know, but so he found the emotional parts that he used as, ev as evidence during the interview were contradictory. I guess he's saying, if you're going to be a numbers guy, why are you talking about the emotions? Mm. That's a contradiction. Yes, that's, that's the gist of it. Thank you, Ali uh, Khalili. You win for confounding the entire <laughs> rook team. We had uh, to read it twice. And do we have uh, criteria for choosing inviting people? Yes, we do. I don't know. I don't really know why we need to clarify that to anybody. Just, but uh, but uh, um, there's all kinds of criteria, including uh, diversity of voices from different parts of the world, um, different demographics, and uh, uh, we people who've done great successful things, people who have an incredible story or people that we really think uh, are fantastic at what they do and we want to bring them to a, a big audience like Sana Sotudeh or Ebrim Bagheri we spoke to about earlier or Faye Arjumandi. Uh so there yeah thank yeah. you Ali Khalili that was good uh, so then we have Bahar Qanbari. Am I pronouncing that right, Shaya? Yes. Good, perfect. thank God. Okay, so she says, Rook is and will be a valuable collection of real stories from the diaspora for current and future generations. Very precious. Thank you again. Thank you, Bahar. Do you mean the diaspora every time you say diaspora. that? Diaspora. Uh -huh. Yeah. Actually, Get it right, Gia. Just remember that Shaya doesn't <laughs> trust you. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure he said you. Shia trusts me more, I'd say, no? Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. Anyway, we're going to go on now. Um, and then we have uh, Instagram username Marzia. She wrote, what a wonderful interview as always. I have a suggestion, though. I suggest you guys produce seven episodes per week. <laughs> it's so not fair that I have to listen to each episode three to four times. Oh. She has rook addiction. You won my heart with that three <laughs> wow. to four times. Except wow. that means when I last week said we had over a hundred thousand streams. Now that means we actually have less because Marzia is just listening to <laughs> a bunch of them over and over again. We actually have seven streams, but she's yeah. All right, nice. yeah. Yeah. What else you got? Anything uh, else? So, uh, Letter that, of the that's week? It. The not yet. Oh, Would you okay. like me to get... Are you Gosh. sick of my no, voice no, already? <laughs> like, God, are we there yet? <laughs> All right. So this week on episode 38, we Ooh. had an interview with legendary Iranian-American journalist. Wait a second. Yes? Today is episode 41. Yeah. Right? So how is the last episode, episode 38, Keon? This is why Shia doesn't trust you. <laughs> <laughs> Episode 40. Episode 40. Right? It was yeah, episode, yeah. 40. episode 40. Oh, yeah. I can't count. Yeah. All right. So uh, episode 40, we had, thank you for correcting no that. No problem. All right. Keon. So we had an interview. Is it the time for the letter of the week yet? <laughs> no. Okay. All God right. damn it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We, so. How did I create this segment? It's turned into a Frankenstein monster. Just keeps going. Right. It gets longer each week. To? No, go ahead. <laughs> episode 38, 40. Which episode? Go ahead. Episode 40. Lots of time. <laughs> All right. Marzia is still listening. <laughs> you got caught. It's the fourth time way. she's been listening. 
Club. We had an interview with legendary Iranian-American journalist Homa Sarshar. Yeah. She reflected on her 55 years as a writer, reporter, producer, and broadcaster from her early years in Tehran growing up as a young Jewish girl to her pioneering role as a female Iranian journalist leading up to the heartbreaking story of being fired from Kahan newspaper in 1978. So, yeah, a few people wrote in about that episode. We have a Sultan BC on YouTube wrote, Gian, I'm so proud to tell my Canadian friends that you're a Persian man. We're so lucky you're doing this for us. Hang on a second. Is this about Homo Sashar? <laughs> Why did you do an introduction about Homo Sashar? <laughs> this guy's talking about me. I mean, to be quite honest, I wasn't prepared for him to write that. Clearly. How, you have an entire week for your five-minute segment. Listen, he wrote on that specific episode, uh-huh. so I, I okay. have to introduce right. which episode, you know. Right. Like, and I think Canadian I mean, friends of his would know that Jean-Pierre. <laughs> Can I read this? This no, one's no, pretty okay. good, actually. Yeah, I, I want to hear it. Oh, I was All happy right. with what he was saying. I just didn't know why it we introduced homosexual. Oh, it is okay. We're going to get to homosexual. Yeah. Well, right. kind of. Um, so uh, he, so Sultan BC Sultan says, BC. I can't even imagine how pr- proud your father would be now wow. for doing a huge service to our culture. Thank Lots you. of love to your team. And then he changes the tone and says, as a nosy Persian and unrelated to your topic, I always feel like Groovy Shia is sad. <laughs> if he lived here, I would have loved to take him out to my patoks. Perhaps if needed, introduce him to, to a hottie that could turn on his fountain of youth. I'm kidding around because I love him. Well, based on what I heard today. With sad little, Shia. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sad he's stone. either, everyone's, oh, you know, it's either he's stoned or he's sad. Oh. Everyone's well, now now we wondering know. He just to, yeah. doesn't trust anybody. That's, that's the root of it. sad, yeah. stone Shia. <laughs> is the best. Thank you, Sultan BC. So uh, you've you, got somebody. He's got, a to suitor. Yeah, yeah, he's going <laughs> to set you up and feed you. And, yeah. All right. you got to go to BC. Well, and then we have Mohammed Hajivandi. Was that pronounced okay? Uh, Hajivandi. Hajivandi. Okay, on Haji. YouTube. On YouTube wrote, My parents were students in the Bay Area for several years during the revolution and the hostage crisis. My dad, Mehrdad, tells a story that makes sense after listening to your guests, including Miss Sashar. He recalls a harrowing moment in Davis when he opens the door to several armed in- individuals in Harrowing, harrowing. <clears throat> harrowing, all right. Harrowing. Shia will correct your no. Farsi. Oh, I'll, I'll correct your English. God, well, based on your pronunciation of diaspora, I don't know. Well, he recalls a harrowing, yes. harrowing moment in Davis when he opens the door to several armed individuals in camouflage, which took him time to realize what he'd seen were benign teenagers trick-or-treating. Uh. Things had changed within and outside the diaspora. That actually speaks to what we've been talking about yeah. in terms of paranoia. Since you've been pestering me, yes. it's the letter of the letter week. Well, this week's letter of the week goes to Sahar Hosseini. Mm. She wrote to us saying, I would like to thank you for your amazing program. Mm. I have to drive 40 minutes to work every day. I started listening to your interviews and most of the time I make myself Hamzid Pendari and she puts in bracket uh, Hamzad Pendari. Hamzad Pendari. She Pendari. says she actually says ask oh, yes. Shaya. What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Hamzad Pendari means 
sympathy. Oh, sympathy. Okay. And she goes on saying, and answer your question on my behalf, which you did. Uh, During my driving time, I gain lots lots of new knowledge and get to know amazing and intelligent people. You're a wonderful team. Wait a second. She said, I started listening to your interviews and most of the time I make myself Hamzad Pandari. I make myself sad. Uh, I think uh, if she meant, uh, as Shia said, like empathy. She, I make she empathizes a- with. Oh, I see. Yeah, with right. with us for some reason. You okay, Keon? <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> <You're> jo- <what? laughs> I'm, I'm this is quite an episode for you. Like, yeah, <laughs> <heavy>. <laughs> 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 you had a Hamzat Pandetti yeah, for just, for lunch. Can't have enough <laughs> right, of that. Right. Oh my. Uh, all right. Club. So thank you. Thank Sahar. you to Sahar Hosseini. That's so nice that you're driving and listening and uh, and helping us with uh, new terms. Uh, she's right. You're a wonderful team. Thank you, Captain Reza, Groovy Shia, Sad Shia as well, and the fabulous Keon. See you next week. Well, it is no secret that the travel ban imposed by the Trump administration a couple of years ago, sometimes referred to, of course, as the Muslim ban, has had deeper implications for Iranians trying to visit the United States than any other people's. And among the critical responses to this action by Trump have been editorials, protests, cries of racism, and attempts at changing legislation or legal challenges. But what about addressing the contradictions or perspective absurdity of the travel ban through comedy? Well, my next guest has not only done so, but went so far as to label her touring stand-up performances the travel ban comedy show. Take a listen to this. You know, I, I'm doing the whole online dating. Um, I'm on OkCupid. Okay I'm on Tinder. I'm on Craigslist. Holla at your girl. Thank you so much. Um, what's really cool is I get hit on differently everywhere I go. Um, I love it, especially when white guys hit on me. Oh my God, I love that. Just see, it's that stare, you know? It's, just, uh, it's like, I don't know if he thinks I'm cute, you know? Or if he wants me out of the country. I don't really know. I don't know. What's your name? What? Colton. Colton. Ooh, that's a strong, firm name. Colton. Colton. You know what your name would be in the Middle East? (laughs) Colton. What do you do, Colton? A little taste of Melissa Shoshahi at a gig at the Laugh Factory in Las Vegas last year. Melissa is a testament to the resilience of second-generation folks of Persian descent. She has infused her life experience as an Iranian-American into her stand-up comedy act and has dealt with the requisite praise and detractors that come with that. She was one of Wuhaha's top female comics of 2018 and has been featured on Laughs on Fox, All Deaf Digital, Nickelodeon, and Fusion. TV. Melissa has also acted in a, in a number of independent films, and she's one of the first female Iranian-American comedians to tour all over the world, bringing her witty personality to the stage, knowing few limits when it comes to comedy. Culture, relationships, worldviews, race issues are all fair game. And right now, Melissa Shoshahi joins me from Seattle, Washington today. Hi, Melissa. 
Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. And by the way, I, I'm in I'm in LA now. <laughs> oh, you are in LA. <laughs> yeah, I was visiting my family in Seattle, and then I just got back to LA yesterday. See, I was all set to start this by going nothing like an LA comedian who's in Seattle. Long way to the ah. comedy store, but, but it makes more no, sense you, for you to be in LA, I think. Yeah, but you can't keep up with my travels, so it's fine. <laughs> Totally fine, yeah. Well, well, first of all, uh, what what is your take from where you are? And so you seem to be traveling at this time uh, on the Corona situation in your country of America. I mean, it seems to be skyrocketing again. What's what's the mood like in in LA and Seattle? I suppose between protests, pandemics, and partisanship. I mean, it's a joke over here. I'm, if you guys are in Canada, I know you guys are making fun of everybody in America. The numbers are just not going down. People are so stupid state by state. I mean, what was it, a couple months ago? I had comedy friends, comedian friends, just itching to do stand-up again. Half of them went to Arizona because apparently the comedy clubs were open there. And I was just like, you guys are stupid. Just wait, you know? Okay. Sorry about that sound. I'm getting my steps in while we're... Uh, you, you're you're literally working out or something while you're doing this interview? Listen, I'm just trying to stay fit. <laughs> I just have to get my 10,000 steps in. Right. Uh, Thank you for multitasking. Weather. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, well, okay. So you're back. You're safe. You're getting in your 10,000 steps. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we have had a couple of comedians on the show, and, and I can only imagine that COVID has not been helpful career-wise. It's probably a great thing that you didn't go to Arizona and do the bar gig uh, um, in the midst of what is a, a climbing uh, situation of COVID cases. But how are you compensating for being unable to do live gigs as a comedian right now? Honestly, I've done a lot of Zoom shows uh on online shows and it's been weird it's so weird to you know tell jokes with nobody laughing i mean talk about bombing <laughs> do, do people pay to see you on do your like is it like a private show yeah they're private shows but you can register some of them you pay to register i mean the, the first show i did was so funny it was free to register and then the audience give give you like tips like if they like you <laughs> like a stripper they tip you right, and so right. they have their venmos and it's so funny none of the male audience people tipped me it was all the women <laughs> it's so funny women support women in comedy and i loved it i was like you men suck sorry <laughs> didn't your father they, didn't one of your parents compare you being a stand-up comedian to being a stripper yeah my dad did I didn't feel more, I felt so, I never felt more like a stripper when they were just tipping me based off my, my performance, but it's, it, it, it was what it was. Were you, were you a kid that always wanted to perform? First of all, how many birds are there around you? I mean, we, we're hearing chirping, we're hearing, there's a lot going on wherever you are. Can you describe so, where you are? Are you in the canyon? Where are you? I'm, I'm so sorry, you guys. First of all, I, I live in Burbank. Okay. And... I don't know what it is about this neighborhood, but I think like this is where birds were born. Okay. <laughs> Bird bank is where you are. Back to when you were a kid in between the birds. Uh, were, were you a kid that wanted to perform? Were you a class clown? Did you have a sense when you were a kid that this was going to be where you would end up doing comedy? You know, 
I would be embarrassed if the teacher even called my name to say something. I was so shy. It was hard for me to talk. It was hard for me to everything. I was just so shy, so quiet in class. I was definitely not the class clown. Around my friends, uh, I was more relaxed and opened up and, uh, you know, I could joke and all of that. Uh, Valley, um, I would do like impressions uh, of all my family. And I had this like, you know, those big video cameras, like those big ones that you, in the 90s you would put over your shoulder. Sure. And then at every Mehmudi, you would go like to each person and you're like, say hi to your Amna in Iran. <laughs> and then everybody would give it a little speech to some family member in Iran and that videotape would go nowhere. So I, um, <laughs> I, had, I would take that video camera that we had and I would set it up in the living room and I would just sit there and do impressions and I would film it. This is before iPhones, guys. And you and were doing selfies of, with a giant video camera. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who who would you do impressions of? My mom, my dad, my mom's customers. At that time, my mom had a nail salon. I'd made fun of everybody that worked at my mom's nail salon. So think of like <laughs> Angela Johnson before Angela Johnson's skit. I would make the accents of every type of culture and um my mom would just be listening and just going what the hell is she doing so so when you're doing those impressions are people saying to you hey you should go into comedy i mean where does because i know you end up getting a ba in communications and media studies mm -hmm. at what point did that turn into the idea that you would go into comedy no, no iranian family member in the 90s or you know early 2000s knows that comedy is even a career right. it's just like oh hope that's funny good for you now go 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 study for your sats maybe even today like today is different because comedy is stand-up is such a big field now uh because of the internet and there's more access to it people know about it but think about it back in like what is it 20 years ago or so well yes right? and if, if you impose the cultural uh implications as well i mean in your act you address and make fun of your parents reactions to you deciding you wanted to pursue comedy and, mm -hmm. and you're, you're realizing your mom says you can't you just be a funny lawyer but was it hard convincing them that you wanted to do this i mean not just to go into comedy but as a female iranian too it was i mean you might be able to say okay there's a maz jabrani or a max amini out there but not a lot of female role models so how harsh was the pushback from your parents? It was really hard. When I start, I started in 2009. So my backstory, after college, I got a job immediately for this Persian online channel. My Farsi wasn't that great, but it was, it was good enough. And uh, I had um, a really cute show called Mel Talk. And it was all this funny, it was funny news. I would say funny news from around the world. And people liked it. It was it was really big in Iran. This was like 2007. And then um, I would I would go around also and interview people at Persian events. So I would go to the Laugh Factory. I would go to like Middle Eastern stand-up shows. Okay, so think about like Axis of Evil time. And I met Maz. I met Maximini. I'm I made friends with so many people. And um, um, when the channel ended, so I started just some open mics, right? 
And Max was really supportive. He was the most supportive person. He was like, you need to be doing this. There are no Iranian women doing this. He really was mentoring me. It takes a lot of confidence to be a stand-up. You talk about being a shy girl when you were a little girl growing up. It, it is a vulnerable place to put yourself in, um, to, especially as coming up to be a, a stand-up uh, at open mic sessions, at, uh, at, at clubs where people are heckling you. How did you build the thick skin to take that leap? Uh, to be honest, you have to keep getting up, keep getting up, keep getting up, keep getting up. And um, there's definitely days where I wasn't confident on stage. And I've learned that being confident is the most important thing when you're doing stand-up. It's more important than your material. It's crazy. You can be a mediocre comedian get on stage and have full confidence and and do all right but if you have really solid jokes and you get on stage with no confidence people can they smell it they smell it because you want to sell your material right. Right? right and a lot of times people come and see you they'll come and see me not based for my jokes they come to see you based off your personality anybody listening who's your favorite comedian you love their personality. I think that's uh, that's a really sage. It's also I think it also is true of a lot of occupations, or certainly any kind of performance, even broadcasting or being a musician. That that sense of confidence is is half the battle. Absolutely. Um, another way to put it might be feeling comfortable in your own skin. I mean, there's also no question that there's been this tradition of chauvinism in comedy in the past. Have you directly experienced that? And I wonder, does it assert itself within the Persian community? By, by which I would mean Iranian guys somehow uh, belittling you or not taking you seriously the way they would a male comedian like Maz Jabrani. I honestly think that it's a definitely male-dominated industry. Anybody looking at stand-up knows that. I don't need to say that out loud. It's unfortunately still a male-dominated industry. Now, saying that, there are so much more female comedians. There's women comedian groups on Facebook. There's women-only shows, and I think that's so important. But unfortunately, still, there's just these comedy worlds out there where male headliners think that they're funnier. They just don't take women comedians seriously what about the persian audience do you feel any particular judgment from persians or is there is it pretty much universal the same kind of reaction you'd get persians were worse until you have to win them over persians way worse think about it our culture are you kidding me it's like i, I get on stage the women judge you who does she think she is what is she dating the headliner they don't want you to be funny because they think, you know, what if my boyfriend next to me thinks she's funny and, and, you know, and prettier than me. And it's just so weird. It's so weird. But eventually you win them over, right? Why is it so important to you? Why do you want so badly to be a, a comedian? I'm, I'm not at all suggesting you shouldn't, but I'm, I'm curious why, given the picture you've just painted, why it's a career that you would want to pursue. Because it's using our voice. We have something to say. 
And when, when there's a challenge, when somebody's like, oh, this is a male dominated industry, it's going to be hard. I love challenges, right? And then also, if I'm not going to do it, who's going to do it? When, when there's nobody else, I'm like, well, I'm definitely going to do it. We need, we need to expand. We need to um, sh- prove to society that women are funny, that there are Middle Eastern women, that we have something to say. Well, let me ask you about something to say. Um, let's, let's talk about your material in general. Your Iranian roots are a large part of your act. And you seem to use it frequently as a source of inspiration in your satire, um, which, of, of course, is what is funny. Uh, and it's not distinct from what people of all kinds of uh, ethnicities, backgrounds, races uh, tend to do and tend to use in terms of their comedy. I wonder in this moment, uh, and being Iranian in the United States, do you ever worry that non-Iranian audiences, white audiences, uh, that you are underscoring stereotypes that they may have about Middle Eastern people and that you have to somehow walk this line of self-parody or making fun of our culture, but at the same time not wanting to advance these negative generalizations that they may have in their heads. Yeah, I like to break stereotypes. Like I make fun of assumptions and I like to break them. Uh, and then also I, I, anything I do make fun of culture-wise, I make fun of it through my own personal so it's me jabbing at myself me jabbing at my family right because people audiences like jokes where you're making fun of yourself and if they can relate that's great like i have you know i'll say a joke about my mom for example and um i'll have like a hispanic audience member say oh my god that so reminds me of my family it is universal right but if it's like just american american audience then i try to do um, i try to every set i customize it so i look at the audience right like i did a show oh my gosh i did a show in january i got booked to do a casino in lincoln city oregon okay predominantly white older above 60 and uh you know, I don't want to say who they support, but you know what I mean. We had two shows. First night, I was like, oh, let me talk about my background. Let me talk. Hey, I'm, you know, Persian and this and that. They did not want to hear that. They didn't like it. Okay. They were not laughing. They automatically judged me. They, they probably thought I was a terrorist. I'm not kidding you. And second show, the next night, I didn't say anything about what I was I just did jokes about relationships, this, anything else. And they loved it. But the first thing I said the first night was my background, and they automatically chose not to like me. Well, then on that note, tell me about the focus on the travel ban that I talked about in the introduction. Because, I mean, you haven't shied away from contentious political subjects in your comedy, and and you've targeted the Trump travel ban in your shows uh, there has been so much saber-rattling and antagonization towards Iran from the Trump administration. What was it about the travel ban in particular that made you really want to turn that into a focus of your comedy? I think it's a big thing that was going on at the time. And I like to talk about issues that are happening and and also educate. Educate people that don't know about it. Half of people that I talked to were like, oh, there is a travel ban, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so <laughs> sometimes you go on stage and you want to, you have to kind of, <laughs> in in a funny way, 
let people know what's happening in the world. Uh, Does it involve some professional risk when you get into territory like the travel ban? I mean, the United States is such a polarized country. Do you worry about being denied gigs or getting pushed back somehow if you take a political stand? Um, no, I don't go too political, and I really have to pick where I um, talk about political stuff, and I've tested it. Like, for example, if I go to Orange County, I can't say anything about Trump. It's just weird. It's just you have to know where you're performing. And is that letting? I, but is that then letting yourself down because you're you have this position on the travel ban and you feel like you have to neuter yourself because the audience isn't going to be on your side? Yeah, and I hate that because this is the world that we're heading towards. You know, we have to monitor a lot of the things that we say, and I hate that. And that's why I love one of my favorite comedians is Dave Chappelle, mm -hmm. because in his la one of his last specials, he was just ripping the audience apart and saying how, you you know, I can't say what I want to say because you guys just don't like anything. But he still says it. He still says the things that he thinks um, he wants, that he believes in. You know, he doesn't care if it's not PC. But he's like the only one that can get away get away with it if you really think about it because it's dave chappelle you, you know uh i'm curious about who your audience is we've had um i'm sure they're friends of yours cave on and tehran a couple of uh comedians who um come out of L la as well at this point cave on's been in las vegas um and they've talked about their surprise that they're actually building audiences back in iran even though i mean cave on cave on doesn't even speak farsi um mm. have you found that with with your online material that you're getting clicks and attention from fans in iran and what did they have to say about this uh, Iranian-American female comedian? Yeah, I've, I've built quite an audience in Iran, and I think it's beautiful. Um, they do love my clips, but they all, a lot of them wish it was in Farsi. That's the only thing I get a lot on my Instagram. People message me, um, and it's really interesting. I learned how to read and write during quarantine. Really? Uh, Mm -hmm, you mean you didn't you didn't you didn't write and read Farsi before and, and you've learned it just in the last three months? Yep, I learned it. Wow. And, yeah. I'm I envious of you. Because I was getting so much hate mail. <laughs> I was like, let me learn how to read this. And uh, so, so you can read the hate mail now in I Farsi <laughs> in its original. You don't have to Google Translate the hate mail. You don't have to Google Translate. <laughs> right now I'm in the stage of like, it, it takes me, you know, a, a time to read it, like the sentence. But every day I'm, I'm reading from this uh, book and I have, you know, so I'm getting better and better at it. But yeah, I taught myself and... I'm exactly the same way. I mean, I, I can speak Farsi and then I, but I've never been able to read or write very well. I mean, it takes, it takes me a long time. I have to like look at each letter and, and so, but I, I'm so jealous that you picked it up this quickly mm. in the last th three or four months. That's amazing. It's very fulfilling. It really is. And my parents are so proud. <laughs> I don't think they've ever been so proud. <laughs> well, so so can you can you write to them in in Farsi now? Like, do you do you have the Farsi yeah, keyboard yeah, yeah, on I, your iPhone and you can like write to them in Farsi? Yes, I can write, but I'm not as confident writing as I am reading. So okay. I'm building that muscle. Well, I'm very impressed. I was listen. I, I I really appreciate the time you've taken today. And where are you at in the um, the ten thousand steps? How many steps? Oh my God! Have you accomplished you. during this interview? That's what I want to oh, know. Thank you. I'm going to share with the world. 
4,500 steps. 4,500. Right. Yeah. Wow. Well, Melissa Shoshahi, I thank you very much for today. I think you should thank us for the 4,500 steps that you've achieved yeah. uh, while, you so while being distracted uh, doing an interview and um, making friends with the birds. And there were sirens. <laughs> there were dogs. I mean, I feel like I've been I'm on an entire. So it's like sorry. The, Le Petit Prince. It's like the little prince. You know, it's like a, a whole journey we've been on with you. <laughs> True. I just wanted to take you guys really in a day of life with me, and uh, right. you know, thank you, it, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, and that what? lawnmower is really good. Okay, is that really is that you? Are you on a motorcycle now? No, that's the lawnmower. Oh, okay. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, this uh, to get having Tony, it just keeps it's continuing. I mean, I feel totally I can't imagine you guys where. are going to be like. We will never interview her again. <laughs> this is it. Thanks for oh this, Melissa. Thank you so much. Merci. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Thank you. Um, anybody, everybody listening, stay safe wherever you are. And hopefully soon we can do a show and I can see you guys. Yes, to come, come and be in our studio in person. Yeah, Thanks absolutely. for this. Yeah, yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> That's Melissa Shoshahi, writer, comedian, actress. She joined us from Los Angeles, California today. And this is full time for Rook today. Thank you so much to those of you supporting, subscribing, spreading the word. We really appreciate it. Thank you to the amazing Rook team of hardworking folks and volunteers. Sarah, Panta, Susan, Keon, Shada, Merdad, Roham, Reza, Shia, Muhammad. Going to go out on some Zed Bazi today. I'm Gian Gameshi. Mizun Bashi. دوباره کنار آب زیر ستر هاییم خوشحال از اینکه تو بهتری سه ماه سالیم درم مشکلی اینه که تحت فشار خوابیم همه چیالیه ولی اگه بذاره پاییز چرا میره جلو اقل هی متنفرم از تای دل من از اول مر میخوام مسجم بکنم خود رو نگاه اینقدر بکشم که بنام شو شو رو بگاه چون من ایده نم ایده میدم بیخونم پس شب بمون پیشم تنها نشد چون که میدونم دوست داری این اخلاقم تو من تو تخت روی هم روی بنگ بوداشم با نور کم فرده رو بیخیال تا از امروز من و تو دوست خوبمون تو اکون هر ما هر سال برگ و رنگ میگیرن یه چند ما سبز و خرب و سرد میمیرن تا به سور رفت سرم و تنم و افتده کرد یه خماری و سرین و معتد کرک ولی زیر کیه یه پایز پیس نمیشیم زمستونم سویس نره میری پیس دیزیم به حالم که فقط بوی خوب داره که داره بهمون میگه تا به سون تور داره ولی Sardaru, mi kori, mi kori, mi
کنیم برف رو عشقمین زندگیمون میخوام غیر بدیرون در گوشم بگه کس خار زندگیمون میاد روزی که دوتا میمونیم هماره یه دوستیگه تا به نوست میره صدای تابستون وقتی پام زیر سر جایی بالش بود ولی نه ما دیگه هرچی بگیم بحانه از داستمونمون آبی مثل مدیترانه است کردم از بدنم جدا تن تو بود گرمتر از سونا ورگو همه ریختم ولی شاخه هست کم کم باید بارو بس باید برگردیم خونه هامون ساک به دست چیزی که مونده یه خاطر است الان بقلت کنم بینمون کابشنه کاش بشه برف زودتر آب بشه چون منو فکرم دم ساحله باید نه موایسم این زن حامله این همه روز میگذر زود دور همین این همه دوست این همه روز میگذر سود این همه روز این همه روز Thank you.